Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. Uh, Before we uh, dive into uh, the message and scripture and and what it has to say to us uh, this morning, uh, I I just want to admit that I am coming in this morning uh, with a a little bit of of a heavy heart. Uh, it, It has just kind of been... Uh, a heavy week in the world around me. Uh, Lots of people that uh, I care a lot about uh, are feeling uh, pretty trapped by uh, some things that are are coming down governmentally. Lots of people that I care a lot about are feeling pretty trapped in their homes because of the numbers that they're seeing and, and the situations and social situations they see going on around them. Uh, And that is to say nothing of what's going on uh, around the world and all the things we see in Afghanistan and other places right now. And it all gets to be a little much. Uh, I saw a a, a post by Jenny Allen, who uh, leads the IF gatherings that uh, a lot of our our ladies have been a part of over the years. Uh, She posted about this sort of weight and how we aren't actually designed to carry the weight of the world. And we are in a unique spot in human history that what's going on, not only in our community, but around the world is ever present and ever available to us to learn more about and to get weighed down by. And and it just all gets uh, a little heavy I was also reminded this morning of joy and that joy is a choice uh, and that uh, joy is something that does not have to happen separate from sadness or heaviness. I heard a Henry Nouwen quote this week talking about how joy and sadness just go together in faith. So wherever you are on that spectrum of joy and sadness, however mixed in they may be for you this morning, or if you're just feeling one or the other, uh, I'm glad you're here. This is a good place to be on that spectrum uh, together. Uh, And uh, as for some of the practical things that are coming down, uh, most of you, I'm assuming, have heard that uh, late last week, the uh, indoor mask policy was put back in place as of tomorrow. With most of these things we've discovered over the last year, a general mandate comes down and then there's some information for churches that will trickle out sometime in the following week. So stay tuned with us. We're figuring out what all of that uh, means for us. We are fairly certain that next Sunday, it does not actually apply to us. So this is your friendly reminder that we will be outside next week. So indoor anything doesn't matter. So we will be out back in our back parking lot uh, and and people can come in mass or not. And we are going to celebrate a baptism. We are going to praise God together. We are going to eat together, which will be far tastier if you help bring some of the food. So uh, fruit, chips, cookies, that kind of thing. Bring it with you. We'll get all that stuff set out. Uh, there'll be chairs. There'll be tables. There'll be a lot of stuff. There'll be a baptism. There'll be a worship team. It'll be fantastic. So that will be uh, next Sunday, same time as always. We will be out there. So there's your reminder for that. So as we uh, dive into uh, what God has for us this morning in scripture, would you pray with me? Father God, we really do come, all of us on these different places on the spectrum of 
joy and sorrow and what we're wrestling with. God, I ask that you would meet us, that you would uh, meet our shaking boots and our fears with your peace, and you would meet our shaking fists and our anger with your peace, and that you would meet us here in, in this space, in this time, wherever we find ourselves, that you really would be the God before us and behind us and beside us, that we would know your presence and the peace that comes with it. And God, that you would teach us through the words that you have for each and every heart this morning, that you would teach us of your love and your blessing and your peace, and that we would be changed, we would grow, we would be made more like you by the work you do in us now. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew uh, was a social outcast. He found himself as the middleman between the government and the people and pretty much despised by both sides. Outcast from any party and any situation. Matthew was also accepted and loved and taught by Jesus as one of his disciples, as one of the people who got to follow him around and be closest to him. And Matthew wrote a gospel, which is just an account of good news. He wrote down his experience, his story of of following Jesus, and that gospel got passed around to a bunch of different churches as an encouragement of saying, here is the good news of Jesus. And in that gospel, he wrote this story, one of many, many stories of Jesus, but he wrote, he wrote this story. This is in Matthew, it's now chapter 13. It says, Jesus returned to Nazareth, his hometown. When he taught there in the synagogue, everyone was amazed and said, where does he get this wisdom and the power to do miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just the carpenter's son. And we know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. All his sisters live right here among us. Where did he learn all these things? And they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Have you ever been doubted? Somebody thought that you weren't up to the task. Somebody thought that... uh, they could disregard you or, or told you you should just stay in your lane. Somebody doubted what you were capable of or doubted your value in some way. Matthew was very familiar with being doubted and disregarded. And I believe he took a lot of comfort in knowing that Jesus was too. And so he tells this story about how Jesus' community, the leaders around him, even his own family doubted him, said this, this can't be him. He can't be all these things that he claims to be. As he started preaching hope and grace, he started performing miracles. As he started equating himself with God, they went, whoa, whoa, whoa. We remember when you were this tall and running. There's no way. And to be fair to them, if one of you all 
started equating yourself with God, I wouldn't believe you either. And if I ever stand up here and start equating myself with God, please lock me up and find somebody else to stand up here and talk to you about things. It makes sense that we would not believe. I mean, I've got siblings. I don't believe the best about them all the time either. And they are not even claiming to be God. So Jesus' family didn't buy it. His community didn't buy it. And it wasn't until after. After Jesus' ministry and all the things he taught and all the incredible miracles he performed, after he predicted his death and he predicted he would rise from the dead, and then he went out and died in a very public way and was raised back to life, the more people in the community and his own siblings went, wait a minute, we, we might have missed something. It wasn't until after everything that anybody in his family except his mother believed in him. But his brothers would go on to be key leaders of the early church movement. Key leaders in spreading this message that Jesus had taught these things that they thought were crazy, they started to define their life by how they followed after these teachings. Last week, we looked at a collection of wisdom and sayings from the oldest of Jesus' brothers, the second of the five, James, and his encouragement to the church. And today... I want to look at a second letter, and this is from the youngest, Judas. And his name really is Judas, and he is not to be confused with the Judas who was one of Jesus' disciples and betrayed Jesus and, and sent him off to his death. And it's because of that confusion that Judas's letter, which is still saved for us in Scripture at the end of the New Testament, the second to last book in there, is now called Jude. Because by the time they were collecting all these things and putting them in English and, and putting a name on stuff, Judas didn't have a real good positive connotation to it. So they simply changed his name to Jude at the beginning of the book and moved on. It's not like they changed scripture, just, just the name of the book. But this is the same guy, the Judas listed in Matthew and the Jude we're going to read from today. So I'm going to start right at the beginning of this letter. It is really short. They don't even have chapters in this little book because it's not worth it. Real short little letter we want to look at today. And Jude starts this way. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I'm writing to all who have been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. So he's clearly writing to people who know James, he references himself not only with Jesus, but, but also references himself with, with James. And, and so we can guess that these are, just from that, that these are people maybe in the Jerusalem community that James was leading, although James was probably a pretty prominent, popular figure. A lot of people knew his name at that point. What we will see is that he is writing to people with a lot of Jewish background. So he's writing to the church in general, but we're going to see that he probably has a specific church or a couple of specific churches in mind. He wants to talk to them about their leaders. 
And we know he's writing to a lot of Jewish people because as you read through this, this letter, a couple of the stories, if you know your Old Testament well, are, are going to ring bells and you're going to go, okay, I, I sort of remember that story or maybe I remember that person, but some of this stuff feels really weird and I've never heard it before. And that's because Jude is quoting from contemporary at the time, Jewish texts, really popular texts that were kind of held up next to what we now consider scripture. I said, these are stories and lessons that we can learn, things that God will teach us through. And so there's a book called First Enoch. All we have about Enoch in our Bible is real tiny in Genesis, but there's a whole story about him that Jude references. He references from a book called The Testimony of Moses, which is really a a literary story based off of the biblical account of Moses. And so there's just some images in here that seem strange, but what we can learn from them is that he's writing to people who grew up Jewish like he did, who grew up learning these stories and who have come to believe that as they look through their scripture, this coming Messiah that they've been looking for, Jesus is that guy. And he has some things that he wants to tell them and teach them. And I I think it's helpful as we think about the context he's writing this in and who he's writing this to, that these are real people. That the people who wrote what, what we have collected as scriptures, the Holy Bible, these were real people. These aren't just characters in a book, but these are people who lived and loved and engaged and had stories and had family traditions. These are people who changed their mind, whether it's about, you know, changing their mind about who their brother says he is, or even changing their mind about what they write about. So continuing in his letter, Jude says, dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share, but now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith. We're going to come back to that phrase in a second. Urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Okay, I want to talk about this phrase, defend the faith. We use the New Living Translation in most of what we do around here. It's what you'll find under the chairs in in front of you if you want to pull out an actual Bible. And I like the New Living Translation, and there we... Uh, there are many translations of the Bible, all having their different ups and downs and values. And I like the New Living Translation because it seems to be a fairly accurate interpretation and translation, sorry, I shouldn't say interpretation, translation of the Bible. And it's in a language that's pretty close to how you and I talk to each other. So it's pretty approachable in that way. However, sometimes when real people are translating scripture, some of our biases seem to sneak their way into the way we translate some words. And this isn't disparaging to the New Living Translation at all, and I don't say it to call into question its translation or anybody else's. There's a lot of value in kind of looking at things in multiple translations, so we go, okay, whatever biases might be here, How can I counter those with some other translations and some different words? 
So for those of us who don't know the original Greek and Hebrew, we can kind of balance it out and see what may be there. If you were reading this passage in any other version, you most likely came to that phrase, defend your faith. And what you had in your Bible was contend for the faith. And I think a late 20th, early 21st century bias has snuck into the New Living Translation here. Where we've gotten very, very focused in church culture on the need to defend our faith. That people are coming after us, people are coming after what we believe, people are coming after our children, and so we better defend the faith. And there is some truth to that need. But contend for the faith and defend the faith are very different postures. You contend for and you defend against. One is about what you are for. One is about preventing what you are against. And I think it raises a good question for us. In your faith, if you are a Jesus follower, in your faith, are you contending or defending? Are you contending or defending? Are you defending against Are you focused on what you are against or are you focused on what you are for, what you are believing for? The church's reputation in our society, rightly or wrongly at this point, for most people, and I will say particularly most people under 40, the church's reputation is one of being closed-fisted that we are holding on so tight, not only to what we believe, but to the traditions that really matter to us. And we are closed-fisted, and we are ready for a fight. Come after us. We're ready to defend. And if we get open-handed at all, it is probably just one finger to be able to point at you and tell you how wrong you are. That's the reputation of the church at this point, rightly or wrongly that we're ready to defend against. We're more defined by what we're against. We're ready to die on hills that have nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus that we say we've given our lives to. We know from scripture that this world is not our home. We're described as foreigners passing through, and yet we are willing to die to defend our castles like this is all we have. In your faith, in your relationship with Jesus, in the way that you engage with the world around you, are you defending or contending? Are you known for what you're against or what you're for? Now, are there things worth fighting for? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Are there things that we need to be defended against or we need to have a defense against? Yes. And and Jude is going to get into some of those things. There are people to protect and love. There are truths that we can't budge on. Christ's holiness and death and resurrection, the supremacy of God, the prime directives of scripture. And Jude says, yes, fight for the truth, contend for the faith. And where does he say to start? At the grocery store? On social media? No. 
In this example, at least, to these churches that he's writing to, he says, you need to start in your own church. We talked last week about dealing with sin and the evils in the world in concentric circles. It starts with dealing with the sin in me and in my family and my house and in our church and in the church and in the world. He says, contend for the faith. Be about what you are for in your own lives, in your families, in your church. I, I do want to take a second just to mention that we at East Hills have a team of elders who oversee the theology in the sense that if they start hearing things going off the rails from us, that they're there to catch us and to make sure that my biases don't come through in, in a theologically inaccurate way. And they're there to protect and defend in that sense, to contend for true theology and contend for the truth in our church. And we have an awesome ministry board of leaders who looks out for me and our staff who make sure that we're getting the time with God and we get to hear from God so that we're staying focused and staying headed in the right direction. And I love that we have that team. And then all of us, you and me, we have to follow the example of the Bereans. And if you don't know who the Bereans are, that's totally fine. They are a tiny little story in the book of Acts, this group of people who, when the gospel was brought to them, the good news of Jesus, they took that good news and they said, all right, let's make sure. We're going to take this, we're going to compare it to our scriptures, and we're going to make sure that everything you says lines up. And what they discovered was that the story of Jesus lined up with their, what's now Old Testament scriptures, and that he was revealed to them as the Messiah, the Savior, the one they had been waiting for, the Savior of the world. We need to be taking in the things that you hear from up here, the things that we hear from uh, politicians and other pastors, the things that we hear on the news and in the neighborhoods and go, okay, <laughs> let me take this back to scripture and see what lines up. Let me take this to God and, and see what lines up with his character and who he has called me to be. Jude wanted to write an encouraging letter about salvation, an encouraging letter about this beautiful story of Jesus and the hope from it that we all share, and he, he will get to the hope part. But he needed to call out the evils in the church that he was seeing. This was his way of contending for the faith and encouraging the church to do the same. Namely, he needed to call out that he saw grace being moved from being a forgiveness thing to being a permission thing. And, and here's what I mean. I want to define grace and permission, and I will admit that these definitions are a tad bit stunted. We could go on and on about both, but I, I think it works not just for our context today, but, but in general. So grace and permission. Grace is calling what is wrong, wrong, and choosing to bless someone. Grace is calling what is wrong, wrong, and choosing to bless someone. Permission is calling what is wrong, right and choosing to bless someone. Now, I also understand you can give permission for legitimately right things. I give my kids for permission. I give my kids permission for things that are, are right all the time. But for our context today, permission 
and how we twist grace. Permission is calling what is wrong right and choosing to bless someone. So God called our sins wrong. We were were made to live in this eternal relationship with God where we got to be with him and things were good and as this disease called sin entered the picture, as our choices hurt the people around us and turned our back on God, he said, that's wrong. And as we continue down through human history, every single one of us has done things that are wrong. We have missed the mark of who we want to be and who we are called to be by God. Now, we were made to be in this eternal life relationship But God was not willing to overlook the fact that wrong things were happening. And as we look around the world and we see all the wrong that's going on, we don't want him to overlook the wrong that is happening. We want to call wrong, wrong. We want to look at the horrifying pictures from Afghanistan and other places around the world and go, no, that's wrong and it cannot continue forever. And so when God called sin wrong, he, he said there has to be a punishment for it, and this thing has to have an end, which means that the punishment, the end of sin, is death. And as a reminder of how significant this was, a reminder that the bad things in the world must come to an end, God set up a system of sacrifices so that the people would be reminded that death is the end of sin and death is the punishment. But rather than them dying, rather than what a lot of other cultures did at their time where they just sacrificed people, he said, we're going to sacrifice some animals. You're going to be reminded that death is the consequence because there are things in the world that are wrong and they cannot be eternal things. God called wrong, wrong. And he said, there must be a punishment for it. And then through Jesus, through Jesus' death, God took that punishment. And it was laid on the person of Jesus. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it was a signifier that he was who he said he was. It was a signifier that the punishment for sin had been taken on to one person, that it did not have to apply to all of us forever, and that there would be new life, that there would be an eternity where sin did not exist. There would be an eternity of relationship with God again, where the things that are wrong are left behind. Whereas we read in Revelation, every tear is wiped away, where the hurts don't carry on forever where we stop hurting one another and are able to love each other and love God perfectly. God called what is wrong, wrong, said there must be a punishment for it and then took on the punishment. When we won't call what is wrong, wrong, and ourselves or others, when we're willing to say, no, 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 that's okay, and we'll excuse it or we'll call it right, It feels more convenient. And what we are doing is we are robbing people of the opportunity to experience God's grace in their lives. 
We're robbing ourselves of the opportunity to experience God's grace because to experience grace, we have to line up with God on calling what is wrong, wrong. We have to say, I know that I have sinned, I've messed up, I've done wrong things, and there's wrong in this world, and there must be an end to it. And God, I'm in need of grace. God, I need you to acknowledge with me that what I did was wrong. And then for some reason, through Jesus, you have chosen to bless us anyway, to bless us with an eternal life. And Jude is calling out this tendency to give permission and to give permission to ourselves and specifically calling out leaders in the church who are taking permission for themselves, who are looking at the wrong things they do and say, no, no, it's fine because, because God forgives everything so I can just do whatever I want. That's not grace. That's not lining up with what is wrong and calling it wrong. That's saying, no, no, I'll just call it right and give myself permission. And Jude said this can't continue. So he actually goes on to compare them to the words of some Old Testament prophets. Later in verse 12, he says, when these people eat with you in your fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love, so celebrating Jesus's death and resurrection, they are like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They are like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. They are like trees in autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and have been pulled up by the roots. They are like wild waves of the sea, churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. They are like wandering stars doomed forever to blackest darkness. Echoing these prophecies they would have been familiar with, these condemnations they knew and then a little later, he speaks directly to the church. He says, these people are grumblers and complainers, living only to satisfy their desires. They brag loudly about themselves and they flatter others to get what they want. But you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's spirit in them. And before we think, whew, I am so glad I am not them, and I'm not like them, and I don't have that mess, I want to talk about this word scoffing for just a second, because we read it in Matthew, and we see it again here in Jude. Have you ever thought. Don't even have to say it out loud. Have you ever thought maybe in the last, I don't know, 18 months or so, when hearing from another Jesus follower, another Christian, another believer, or when reading their post on social media, have, have you ever thought, how could they believe something so dumb? Have you ever thought, how could they actually think like that? How could they be such sheep? How could they be so uncaring, scoffing? We scoff. How could they? I'm so much better than that. I, I know so much better than that. 
Here's the thing. You might be right. They might be believing dumb things. They might be uncaring. You might be right. But what divisions are you creating between you and that other believer? They may not go to this church, but they are part of the kingdom of God with us, part of his church. What divisions are you sowing, even in your own heart and mind, between you and being able to love that other believer well? And, and I know that their words or their post started it. And you're just reacting. But we aren't second graders. <laughs> and it doesn't really matter who started it. What division are you creating in your heart and mind between you and another brother or sister in Jesus' family? What divisions are you creating between you and God because you're scoffing at the people he loves, because you're scoffing at his children? What divisions are you creating between your heart and mind and God because you're carrying around a bitterness and a frustration and you don't want to hand it over to him because you kind of like it? Now, I'm not saying that, uh, as Jude is calling out here, that you're living only to satisfy ungodly desires or don't have the spirit of God in you. I'm just saying, let's call wrong, wrong in us too. So Jude says that on the other hand, here's how we are to live. Verse 20. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourself safe in God's love. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. Jude sets up a little bit of a comparison for us, a, a dichotomy for us to choose from, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but, but here's the choice. You can be known, or you can be a person who causes division. You can be known for being a person who causes division and, and gets what you want, or you can be known for building people up and showing mercy to others. You can be a person who divides and uses those divisions as opportunities to move yourself into a place of power or to get what you want out of a situation. Or you can be a person who builds others up, shows mercy to the people around you. In God's strength and love, even in the hard and difficult situations, we can work to build each other up. Now look, I know people hurt each other. And that is certainly true for Jesus-loving people as well. We say and do things that create hurt. It's what we need to name in our own lives and, and seek God's grace for. 
And I know that for many of us, when we're hurt by a person, it is our tendency to distance ourselves, to move away, to not engage with them anymore. And there are ways in which that is really, really smart sometimes. But there are also ways where we just let that hurt fester and create a deeper and further division between us and the people in the church. And here's the thing. We all, as followers of Jesus, in this church and in the churches around us, we as followers of Jesus have that same promise of eternal life. We live under the promises of the same resurrection, which means we are going to be spending a lot of time beyond time together. And we need to be building each other up. We need to build up and not tear down. We need to be people who pursue peace with one another. Now, sometimes pursuing peace does not end in full reconciliation of a relationship. Sometimes that is not possible. Sometimes pursuing peace means engaging in conversations that are still hard and painful. But we are called to be a people who build others up and show mercy to others. And if grace is calling wrong, wrong, and then blessing somebody anyway. Mercy is sort of its inverse. It's calling wrong, wrong, and then not seeking to punish or hurt them. It's calling the hurt that they did to you wrong and saying, this hurt, (laughs) and I am going to choose to forgive instead of making sure you hurt too. I'm not going to let the hurt you did to me drive me. I'm not going to let it determine who I am or how I act. And I'm not going to let it drive me to retribution or revenge. I'm going to call it wrong. I'm going to show mercy. We show the mercy for the pain they've caused. And we choose to forgive. As a Side note, but an important one. This is not forgive and forget. It's not what I'm asking us to do. It's it's not forgive and bury it and pretend that doesn't exist anymore, that hurt never happened. Scripture lays out and science is proving that that's not really how forgiveness works anyway. And it's not what we're called to. We do have to name what is wrong as wrong, not pretend that it was actually okay. We have to call sin, sin, inside and outside of the church with mercy and love and compassion. We, we don't need to give room and space and permission for abuse and selfishness in ourselves or in others. If you see it, name it in the mirror, in the people you love around you. If you see it, name it with mercy and love and compassion. Name it.
We don't want to be a people who robs other people of getting to experience God's grace. And neither do we want to rob them of the grace and mercy that we're called to show them. We don't want to rob them of that because we're fighting selfishness with selfishness. Selfishness, easy for me to say. And, and I do, do want to say, since I already stumbled over my words, just in case anybody's having this thought pattern, I am not thinking of any particular situation in this church. There is not something like going on behind the scenes that's going to come out in some grand conspiracy later. Uh, Wendy and I went to a church like 20 years ago where the pastor spent so much time talking about uh, pulling up the carpets and sweeping out the stuff that had been swept under the rug. We were like, whoa, I do not want to be here because I don't know what's going on. This is not one of those situations. There's nothing going on. I just want to call us to show mercy and love and compassion to each other, to build each other up. Because that's the way of Jesus. That's the way we live out the gospel that we give our lives to. And I want to give you a compelling reason for doing this. Because I know this is hard. Because I know it's hard to engage in situations where you've been hurt. Because I know it's hard to muster up the courage sometimes to call wrong, wrong. Because I know how easy it is for me to just lean into my own selfishness in my own way. So why do we do this hard thing? Why should we show mercy? Why should we build up? To love other people, yes but also because our lives should reflect the God that we have given our lives to. Because our lives should tell this story. Last two verses of Jude. He writes, Now all glory to God, who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who alone is God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time and in the present and beyond all time. Amen. We do this because we reveal the glory of God by doing the things for others that he's done for us. You reveal the glory of God by doing for others what he has done for you. He has shown you mercy. He has sacrificed for you. He has pursued peace with you. He did not let you or me wallow in our sin and settle into the pain of the consequences but he came with grace and mercy and love and compassion and he sacrificed and he pursued peace not to make you feel guilty, not to make you feel like you owe him a debt or like you have to earn his love, but simply because he loves you. Simply because he loves you. And we are called to extend that love to the people around us, to build them up, to show mercy, to pursue peace, to love sacrificially, to call what is wrong, wrong, what is right, right, to love, to forgive, 
to build up, to show mercy, so that other people can experience the mercy and grace of God that we have gotten to experience, so that other people can experience his peace. It's a peace and a mercy that he loves to give, and he gives with love. So as the worship team comes up, you join me in praying for our church and our community. Father God, would you make us a people who build up? Would you make us a people who glorify you, who reveal who you are through people around them, through your spirit at work? Would you let them know of your love for them, the peace you have for them? sacrificial love you extend to them, the mercy and grace you want to give them. And Father, as part of our gratitude for how you have loved and the gifts you've given us, the blessings you've given us, would you lead us into blessing and forgiving and loving and building up the people around us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.